0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between.
1: Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy filled marriage and family.
0: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.
2: This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revived Thoughts.
0: boy never knows what his home was worth until he has left for the first time to school. And then he misses. And as he misses, he eagerly recollects and realizes all that he has left behind. Every episode, we
1: bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon comes to you from Henry P. Lyddon. It was preached at St. Paul's Church in London in the year 1879. The name of this sermon, uh, The First Five Minutes After Death... Uh, made
2: me think of those movies or stories where someone dies and then comes back from heaven. Uh, but just to clarify, this sermon does not have anything to do with that kind of thing. Uh, he was in the same city, London, as Charles Spurgeon and preached at the same time as him and many others, yet he had thousands attend his church at the same time as them. He may not be as known to us today, but I think that is only due to our own discredit of forgetting so many of the greats of history. I would also add him to my time machine. You know, We mentioned before, if we could go to one time frame, we'd go to the 1800s around this era and just listen to a bunch of preachers probably in london and he definitely now makes the list of sundays i'd want to make sure i didn't miss uh this sermon reminds us of the importance of everything we do in this life it's a common theme but the best sermons in history tend to be the ones that remind us that our lives are short and how we live them matters in the scope of eternity
1: yeah we're going to be going to hampshire england for his birth in the year 1829 and his father was captain matthew Lydon. And, Troy, be honest with me. I'm going to tell if you're lying. I can tell. Do you... Did you... Before doing research for this episode, did you know who Captain Matthew Lyddon was?
2: Did I know? I had his poster hanging up in my room. I was like, I've never heard of Matthew You've never Lidden. heard of him? Never. Absolutely not. Me Have me you? Yeah. No.
1: But the way that we read about him makes him seem like the most famous guy in the world. Like, he's... <laughs> he's way more famous than... Henry P. Liddon is, the, the person who preached this sermon. This is partially because of the battle between the United States and Great Britain, also known by the Americans as the War of 1812. And during this time, he captured many American ships and rose through the ranks. In fact, there's still a memorial to him to this day in the UK. And he was also the second in command to an Arctic expedition that found the Northwest Passage traveling with the explorer William Perry. So a lot of things in his name I'm curious I mean we obviously Americans grew up you know American history. I'm curious if people in like England learning about this guy in school if you that's if, true. If we have English Lewis listeners Lewis and Clark
2: pictures are everywhere in America, do you have Matthew Lydon
1: and William Perry pictures? Yeah, or maybe not. Maybe we're just mm-hmm. we're uncovering something here that's not commonly known. If if you're an English listener, write into the show and tell us if you knew who this who Matthew Captain Matthew Lydon was prior to hearing this episode i'm very curious me too in
2: 1819 they got these guys who went to the arctic and did this expedition they got much further than any search through the canadian side of the arctic waters um, pretty much that anybody had done before Uh, he was commanding one of these two ships through these dangerous icy passages at one point the sun goes down and does not come up again for three months they were frozen in for ten solid months Uh, before the ice melted and their ships were able to move again to keep them in busy these guys would put on plays they had a newspaper they would just do all these things to keep themselves from dying of boredom you know we we sometimes get bored getting stuck inside of our house i just imagine getting stuck inside of an icy ship with like 200 other guys i imagine that would be it could, be, it could be something. That's, keeping yourself entertained could be something. Now, this is, so far we've just been talking about Liddin's dad, uh, but the same Perry, this guy who did this expedition, would end up paying for the schooling of Henry Liddin himself. So there is some relevance. Also, it's just a cool story. Uh, but his personal life, it, Henry Lyddon's personal life is a little bit difficult to understand. Um, if you've listened to our episode on Theodore Kyler, this might sound familiar. There's this style in the 1800s where men just didn't really think much of themselves or their mental state. They didn't, uh, they didn't go into a lot of details about who they are, and I think the best way to explain this is he has a diary entry that just says, I met Spurgeon today, and that's it. He doesn't say, um, what did they talk about? What were they doing? What were they thinking? Where were they? Anything. It just says, today I met Spurgeon, and you might have another one that's like, today I ate you know, this, and I met so-and-so, and they don't really elaborate a lot on the things that we would find most interesting to understand about the conversations.
1: Henry Lydon. he goes to Oxford and he's pretty influential there. He gets a reputation for himself after he finishes his time in Oxford there. Bishop Wilberforce, not to be confused with William Wilberforce, who is actually Bishop Wilberforce's, that's kind of a tongue-tire, say Wilberforce. There it is, Wilberforce's. Wilberforce's uh, father. So um, some people know William Wilberforce in church history around this area for helping in the slave trade in that time. It's actually his son who becomes friends with Henry Lyddon and actually asked him to become the vice principal at a new college that he's starting Wilberforce uh, we could we could write a whole episode just on him and what he's got going on. This was around the time that Charles Darwin was dropping his book The Origin of the Species and so there's a lot of debate uh, around this new theory of evolution at that time. It was brand new and Wilberforce famously had these uh, these debates with him at Oxford. But that is a tangent. Back to Lyddon here. In 1866, he was asked to give something called the Bampton Lectures, these important lectures that happened at that time. And it was, everyone kind of understood that he had less time to prepare for these lectures than the other people that were presenting lectures at that time. And Lyddon writes about being really nervous and, and anxious about these lectures because he didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare. And he was working around the clock to make sure that he had something to present.
2: Uh, but Lydon did amazingly well and gave a
1: series of lectures that
2: were just to be remembered. Uh, because of that, he soon rose to prominence. Eventually, he was asked to be a dean at Oxford. Obviously, even today, that would be a very big thing. But that was even huge. It was huge back then. Um, and at the same time, the same exact year, he was appointed to preach at St. Paul's Cathedral. Between, considering these are two of like the focal points of the Church of England in that era, he was extremely influential and very prominent. During this time too, uh, in the 1800s, a lot of people were kind of starting to trend towards Unitarianism, uh, Unitarianism was this idea that all studies of God are the same and you don't really need to, you know, there's no difference between the different gods and things like that. And the Bible and the church were just deeply under attack. A man named John Henry Newman converted to Catholicism while he was at Oxford, and this caused this really big divide between the people at Oxford growing towards this biblical liberalism, liberalism, the idea that the Bible is not very solid, and those in the more evangelical camp saying, take the Bible literally. Lydon was firmly one of the leaders of that traditional camp of taking the Bible
1: seriously and taking God at his word. The whole time was really making a huge shift towards a new age of skepticism towards faith, and he was kind of, he held fast during that time. But he also got along with a lot of other people. A book that he published around this time uh, is titled Some Words for God, and it made him famous for defending the faith. It brought recognition towards this idea that, no, 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 there's nothing wrong. In fact, you know, it's wrong to drift from these principles that we find in our core values as Christians. And he was involved with the community. He was involved with politics. He would fight against certain acts passed in Parliament, and he also would call out atrocities that he would hear about around the world. He never married, you know, based on some comments that that we see. It definitely seems like he's more of a married-to-his-work type of guy definitely. where he uh, spent all of his time reading and, and researching, but at the same time has a little bit of a life. He had circles, he had dinner parties, and he had dinner parties with people that didn't agree with him. Like, we, we see him talking about... Having these dinners with, like, what we would we consider to be enemies in the parliament? People that voted uh, against things that he was for. You wouldn't see that against current day politicians. But this is an era and this is an age. And these are types of people that, when you know, when you go to parliament and you have a debate and you can yell at each other and defend why you think, uh, you know, something should or shouldn't be voted. And then at the end of the day, you can go out and, uh, you know. What, what do they eat in England? fish some mean, b- pheasant, ships? pheasant, right? pheasant.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking fancy people. He's also, I mean, of all the people, I don't know of any other preacher that was having dinner parties. I mean, he almost sounds like a bit of a social. He says is kind of like that social guy, he's aristocrat, kind of running around town, not not doing worldly things, man. Just yeah. just getting to know it's, the people, just having a good time all the time. It, it's a very different. A style of preacher than a lot of the others who are in there. Usually they're in their study writing a book on Greek Orthodoxy right. and he was doing that too, but he, he really enjoyed time out. <laughs> After he retires, he travels to Egypt, uh, Palestine, and other places like that. He He also may have accidentally made a huge mark on literature that is still with us to this day. A neighbor of his, who had asked him to read his books in the past, asked him to kind of a name of this new book he was working on, and Lynn suggested, well, you could call it Through the Looking Glass, and Lewis Carroll, the author of Alice in Wonderland, loved it, went with it, and they became good friends uh, during that time. Uh, This guy would also Lewis Carroll would go with him when he went to visit Russia uh, because uh, Lydon got the idea that maybe the Church of England and the Orthodox Church of Russia could get along better. And so the two of them went to Moscow together. So just interesting stories of, again, just him being very much out there with people and he, again, liking
1: to travel. Yeah, so some describe him as, as too traditional, that although he was a great preacher, he didn't advance... Theological thought, but uh, I mean, I'd say here on revive thought. I think that's why we like him. <laughs> like yeah. he he holds first in that faith. He wasn't interested in promoting new ideas, but defending the old truths, the, the the genuine truths that we find in scriptures, especially in an age of modernism and skepticism that sought to do away with God and the church. He and J.C. Ryle uh, are considered to be some of the last two great preachers of the Anglican church the church of england would not really capture the hearts of england through its preachers again quite like they did when these two were living henry liddon would die in the year 1890 this sermon caught my eye originally because of its
2: name Um, what happens after the first five minutes of death it's such a strange question yet in some ways i think our entire lives both here and in the next life really depend on what we think the answer to that question is of what is going to happen to us in those first five minutes
0: For now we see through a glass blurry, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know even as also I am known. 1 Corinthians 13.12 An Indian officer who in his time had seen a great deal of service and had taken part in more than one of those decisive struggles by which the British authority was established in the East Indies had returned to end his days in this country. He was talking with some young men about the most striking experiences of his professional career. They led him, by their sympathy and their questions, to travel in memory through a long series of years, and he described skirmishes, battles, sieges, personal encounters, close escapes, the outbreak of mutiny and its suppression, reverses, victories, and all the swift alternations of anxiety and hope which a man must know who was entrusted with command. As one who fought the enemy, their interest in his story, as was natural, became excited, and they wanted more details. At last he paused with the observation, "'I expect to see something much more remarkable than anything I have been describing to you.'" As he was seventy years of age, and was understood to have retired from active service, his listeners failed to catch his meaning. There was a pause, and then he said softly, I mean in the first five minutes after death. The first five minutes after death. Surely the expression is worth remembering, if only as that of a man to whom the life to come was evidently a great and serious reality the first 5 minutes if we could employ for a moment when speaking of eternity standards of measurement which belong to time for it is at least conceivable that after the lapse of some thousands or tens of thousands of years we will have lost all sense of time that existence will have come to seem to be only a never ceasing present an unbegun and unending now it is i say at least conceivable that this will be the way it is. But can we also suppose that at the moment of our entrance into that new and wonderful world, we will already think and feel as if we had always been there, or had been there at least for ages? There is no doubt an impression sometimes to be met with that of death is followed by a state of unconsciousness. If sleep and death are truly one, and every spirit's folded bloom through all its terrible gloom, in some long trance should slumber on. Unconscious of the sliding hour, bare the body, might it last, and all the traces of the past be all the color of the flower. But that is a belief which is less due to the mechanics of reason than to the sensitiveness of imagination. The imagination recoils from the task of anticipating a moment so full of awe and wonder as would be that of the introduction of a conscious spirit to the invisible world. And so reason attempts to persuade itself, if it can, that life after death will not be a conscious life. It is difficult to recognize a single reason why. If life survives at all, it should surrender its consciousness. Certainly the life of the souls under the heavenly altar who intercede perpetually with God for the approach of the Last Judgment are not in an unconscious life. Certainly the paradise which our Lord promised to the dying thief cannot be reasonably imagined to have been a moral and mental slumber. And those ministers of God who do his pleasure, who are sent out to minister to them that are the heirs of salvation, will reach a condition higher than that which is produced by chloroform. No, this belief of an unconscious state after death is a discovery not of revelation, not of reason, but of desire, of a strong desire on the one hand to keep a hold on immortality and on the other to escape the risks which immortality may involve. It cannot be doubted that consciousness, even if not retained just before death, may be suspended by sleep or by a physical disease or by derangement, must be recovered as soon as the act of death is completed with the removal of the cause which suspended it. Should this be the case, the soul will enter upon another life, with the habits of remembering time still clinging to it. They may be forgotten gradually, if they are forgotten, in the after-ages of existence. And the first sense of being in another world must be overwhelming. Imagination can form no worthy estimate of it, but we may do well to try to think of it to the best that we can this afternoon, since it is at least one of the approaches to the great and awful subject which should be before our thoughts in life. And here the Apostle comes to our assistance with his anticipation of the future life as a life of enormously enhanced knowledge, then I will know, even as I am known, He is thinking of that life as a whole, and not of the first moment entering into it immediately after death. He is also thinking of the high privileges of the blessed saints in heaven, whose knowledge we may presume to say will be vast, because they will see all things in God as if looking at an ocean of truth. But it cannot be supposed that an increase of knowledge after death will be altogether confined to the blessed. The change itself must bring with it the experience which is inseparable from a new mode of existence. It must unveil secrets. It must discover vast tracts of fact and thought for every one of the sons of men. Let us try to keep it before our minds reverently and earnestly for a few minutes, and let us ask ourselves what will be the most startling additions to our existing knowledge at our first entrance in the world to come. First, as we begin the next state of being, we will know what it is to exist under entirely new circumstances. Here we are bound up, and we hardly realize how much, intimately in thought and affection, with the persons and things around us. They influence us subtly and constantly in a thousand ways. In some cases, they altogether shape the course of our life. In every life, it has been truly said, much more is taken for granted than is ever noticed. The mind is eagerly directed to the few persons and things which affection or interest force prominently into view. It gazes inattentively at all the rest. As we say, it does not take them in, until some incident arises, which forces them one by one into view. A boy never knows what his home was worth until he has left for the first time to school. And then he misses, and as he misses, he eagerly recollects and realizes all that he has left behind. Who of us that has experienced it can ever forget those first hours at school after leaving home? That moment when the partings were over, and the carriage drove away from the door, and we heard the last of the wheels and of the horses as they went around the corner, and when we turned to find ourselves in a new world. We were among strange faces, and in strange scenes, and under a new and perhaps tougher authority. Then, for the first time, from a distance, we found out what our home had been to us. It was more to us in memory than it had ever been while we were in it. All that we saw, and heard, and had to do, and had to give up at school, presented a complete contrast which engaged our memories of what had been the rule of home, of its large freedom, of its gentle looks and words, of its scenes and haunts which had taken such a hold on our hearts without our knowing it. It was too much. We had to shrink away in some place where we could be alone, and recover ourselves as best we could before we were able to fall in with the ways of our new life. No doubt in time, habit did its work. Habit turned school, I will not say into a second home, but into a new and less agreeable kind of home. And as the years passed... We saw repeated again and again in the case of others that which we had experienced at first and with a vividness that did not come back to ourselves. This may enable us, in a certain sense, to understand what is in store for all of us at our entrance by dying into the unseen world. I do not, of course, mean that this life is our home, and that the future at all necessarily corresponds to school as being an endless banishment, God forbid, if we only will have it, the exact reverse of this will be the case. But the parallel will so far hold good that at death we must experience a sense of strangeness to which nothing in this life has even approached. Not only will the scene be new to us, as yet it is unimaginable. Not only will the beings around us with all the shapes, forms, conditions of existence, as strange they are, will be inconceivable to us, but we ourselves will have undergone a change, a change so complete that we cannot here and now anticipate its full meaning. We will exist, thinking and feeling and exercising memory and will and understanding, but without bodies. Think about what that means. We are presently at home in the body. We have not yet learned by losing it what the body is to us. The various activities of the soul are sorted out and appropriated by the senses of the body, so that the soul's action from moment to moment is made easy. We may well conceive by being a part of the body. What will it be to compress all that the senses now achieve separately, into a single act. To see, but without our eyes. To hear, but without these ears. To experience something purely supersensuous that will make up for the grosser senses of taste and smell. And to see, hear, smell, and taste by a single movement of the spirit, combining all these separate faculties of apprehension into one. What will it be to find ourselves with the old self, divested of this body, which has clothed it since its first moment of existence. Able to achieve, it may be so much, or it may be so little. Living, but under totally new conditions. This experience alone will add so much to our existing knowledge and experiences, and the addition will have been made in the first five minutes after death. Second, the entrance to the next world must bring with it a knowledge of God, such as is impossible in this life. In this life, many men talk of God, and some men think much and deeply about him. But here, men do not gain that sort of direct knowledge of God, which the Bible calls sight. We do not see a human soul. The soul shows itself felt in conduct, in conversation, in the faces we make. Although these signs often enough mislead us, the soul speaks through the eye which misleads us less often. That is to say, we know that the soul is there, and we detect something of its character and power and drift. We do not see it in the same way we feel God present in nature, whether it is awe or its beauty. And in human history, whether in its justice or its weird mysteriousness, we sense God's presence, and in the life of a good man, or the circumstances of a generous or noble act. Most of all, we feel him near when conscience, his inward messenger, speaks plainly and decisively to us. Conscience, that invisible prophet, surely appeals to and implies a law, and a law implies a lawgiver, but we do not see him. No man has seen God at any time. Even the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, is only said to have declared him, since in him the Godhead was veiled from earthly sight by that mantle of flesh and blood, which together with a human soul he assumed in time. Certainly great servants of God have been said to see him even in this life. Job says, I have heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And David, as for me, I will behold your presence in righteousness and Isaiah beheld, while the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And St. John, when he saw the risen Savior in his glory, fell at his feet as dead. These are either supernatural anticipations of the future life, vouchsafed to exceptionally good men, or they are, as with Job, cases in which men are said to see God only in a relative sense. Sight does not mean anything spiritual, which corresponds fully to the action of the bodily eye, but only a much higher degree of perception than had been possible in a lower spiritual state. Of the children of men in this mortal state, the rule holds that no one has seen God at any time. But after death, there will be a change. It is said of our Lord's glorified manhood, united as it is forever to the person of the eternal Son, that every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. Even the lost will then understand much more of what God is to the universe and to themselves, although they are forever excluded from the direct vision of God. And they too will surely see God, who are waiting for the full glories of the sight to be vouchsafed to them after an intermediate time of discipline and training in the state which Scripture calls paradise. The spirit of man, we cannot doubt, will be much more conscious of the spirits around it and of the father of spirits than was possible while it was encased in the body. God will no longer be to it a mere abstraction, a first cause, a first intelligence, a supreme morality, the absolute, the self-existent, the unconditioned being. He will no longer reveal himself to the strained tension of human thought as one by one his attributes are weighed and balanced and reconciled and apportioned after such poor fashion and measure as is possible for the finite mind when dealing with the infinite. None of us will have any more play with phrases about him to which nothing is felt to correspond in thought or fact. He will be there right before us. We will see him as he is. His vast, unlimited life will present itself to the apprehension of our spirits as a whole being. Not as a complex problem to be painfully mastered by the effort of our understandings, but as a present, living, encompassing being. He who inflicts himself on the very sight of his adoring creatures. What will that first apprehension of God under the new conditions of the other life be? There are trustworthy accounts of men who have been utterly overcome at the first sight of a fellow creature with whose name and work they had for long years associated great wisdom or goodness or ability. The first sight of the earthly Jerusalem has endowed more to one traveler with a perfectly new experience in the life of thought and feeling, what must not be the first direct sight of God, the source of all beauty, of all wisdom, of all power when the eye opens upon him after death. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty were words of warning as well as words of promise. What will it be to see him in those first few moments? God, the eternal love, or God, the consuming fire? We will know him in the first five minutes after death. And once more, at our entrance into another world, we will know our old selves as never before. The past will lie spread out before us, and we will take a comprehensive survey of it. Each man's life will be displayed to him as a river, which he traces from its source in a distant mountain, till it mingles with the distant ocean. The course of that river lies, sometimes through dark forests, which hide it from view, sometimes through sands or marshes, in which it seems to lose itself. Here, it forces a passage angrily between sharp rocks. There it glides gently through meadows, which makes it green and fertile. At one point, while it might seem to be turning backwards out of pure caprice, and at another point to be parting, like a happy spendthrift, with all of its waters— while later on it receives additional streams that restore its strength. And so it passes on, till the ebb and flow of the tides upon its bank tells that the end is near. What will the retrospect be when, after death, we survey, for the first time, as with a bird's eye view, the whole long range, the strange circumstances, the loss and gain as we deem it? And the failures of the triumphs of our earthly existence, when we measure it as never before in its completeness, now that it is at last over. This indeed is the characteristic of the survey after death, that it will be complete. There no shade can last in that deep dawn behind the tomb, but clear from edge to edge will bloom the eternal landscape of the past. That survey of life which is made by the dying, is less than complete. It cannot include the closing scene of all. Where there is life, there is room for recovery, and the hours which remain may be very different from those which have come before. It may be thought that to review life will take as long a time as to live it, but this notion betrays a very imperfect idea of the resource and capacity of the human soul. Under the pressure of great feeling, the soul lives with a speed and intensity which disturb all its usual relations to time. Witness the reports, which those who have nearly lost their lives by drowning have made of their mental experiences. It once happened to me to assist at the recovery of a man who nearly lost his life while swimming. He had sunk that last time, and there was difficulty in getting him to land and when he was on land, still greater difficulty in restoring him. Happily, there was skilled assistance at hand, and so eventually my friend recovered, but not without much worry. First one, and then another, of the sensations and faculties of his body came to life. In describing his experience of what must have been his conscious side of the act of dying by drowning, he said that the time had seemed to him to be a very long time. He had lost his standard of the worth of time. He had lived his whole past life over again. He had not summed it up. He had repeated it as it seemed to him in detail and with the greatest intensity. He had great difficulty in understanding that he had only been in the water for a few minutes during these intense moments of existence. The life of the soul has no sort of relation to what we call time. Yes. In entering another world, we will know what we have been in the past as never before, but we will also know what we are. The soul, divested of the body, will see itself as never before, and it may be that it will see disfigurements and ulcers which the body, like a beautiful robe, had been before shrouded from the sight, and which are revealed in this life only by the shock of a great sorrow. Or of a great fall, there is a notion abroad, and whether true or not, it is very comfortable to think, that the soul will be so changed by death as to lose the disfigurements which it may have contracted through life. That the death agony is a furnace, and by being plunged into which the soul will burn out its stains. Or that death involves such a shock as to break the continuity of our moral condition, though not of existence itself. And so that, in changing worlds, we will change our characters, and that evil will be buried with the body in the grave while the soul escapes, now purified by separation from its grosser companion to the regions of holiness and peace. Surely, brethren. This is an illusion which will not stand the test we need, not to mention it lacks Christian truth and goes against reasonable reflection. It is a contradiction to all that we know about the character and mind of man, in which nothing is more remarkable than the intimate and enduring connection which subsists between its successive states or stages of development. Every one of us here present is now exactly what his past life has made him. Our present thoughts, feelings, mental habits, good and bad, are the effects of what we have done or left undone, of cherished impressions, of passions indulged or repressed, or pursuits vigorously embraced or willingly abandoned. And as our past mental and spiritual history has made us what we are, so we are at this very moment making ourselves what we will be. I do not forget that intervention of a higher force which we call grace, and by which the direction of a life may be suddenly changed, as in St. Paul's case at his conversion. Although these great changes are often prepared for by a long preceding process, and are not so sudden as they seem, but we are speaking of the rule. And not of the exception. The rule is that men are in each stage of their existence, with or without God's supernatural grace, what they have made themselves in the preceding stages. And there is no reasonable ground for thinking that at death the influences of a whole lifetime will cease to operate upon character, and that whatever those influences may have been, the soul will be purified by the shock of death. Why, I ask, should death have any such result? what is there in death to bring it about? Death is the destruction of the bodily frame, of the limbs and organs through which the soul now acts. These organs are, no doubt, very closely connected with the soul, which strikes its roots into them and acts through them. But although closely connected with the soul, they are distinct from it. Thought Conscience, affection, will, they are all quite independent of the organs which are dissolved by death. And it is impossible to see why the soul should put on a new character, simply because it lays aside for a while the instrument which it has employed for a time, any more than why a painter's right hand should forget its cunning because he has sold his easel, or why a murderer, in fact, should cease to be a murderer at heart because he has lost his dagger and cannot afford to replace it. True, at death, the ear, the eye, the hands, they all perish, but when they are destroyed in this life by an accident, does character change with them? The indulgence of the purely animal appetite may depend on the healthy condition of the organ, but the mental condition which permits it, if does not dictate it, the indulgence remains unaffected. Principles of right action and their opposites. Principles of doing evil outlive the ability to do them. The habit of thieving is not renounced because the right hand has been cut off, nor are sensual appetites lost because the body is weak through illness. And evil curiosity does not die because the eye is dim and the ear deaf. And when all the instruments through which in this life the soul has expressed itself and which collectively make up the body, are laid aside by the act of death, the soul itself and all its characteristic thoughts and affections will remain unaffected, since its life is independent of its bodily shell, as is the body is independent of the clothes which we wear. There is one being who knows us now, who knows us perfectly, who has always known us, When we die, we will, for the first time, know ourselves, even as also we are known. We will not have to await the judge's sentence. We will read it at a glance, whatever it is, in this new apprehension of what we are. It may help us, then, this year, to think from time to time of what will be our condition in the first five minutes after death. Like death itself, these serious realities which follow it, must come to all of us. We do not know when, or where, or how we will enter it. We only know that it must come. Those first five minutes, that first awakening to a new existence, with its infinite possibilities, will only be tolerable if we have, with the hands of faith and love, laid hold on the hope set before us. If we have trusted in the person of Jesus Christ, Our Lord and Savior, who for us men and our salvation took flesh and was crucified and rose from death and ascended into heaven, he has pleaded incessantly at the right hand of the Father for us, the weak and erring children of the fall. Without him a knowledge of that new world, of its infinite and awful master, and still more of ourselves as we really are will indeed be terrifying. With him, we may trust that such knowledge will be more than bearable. We may think calmly even of that tremendous experience, if he, the eternal God, is indeed our refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.
2: When we finally see God and we really know and understand what our life was really about, and not to make it too much about us, but it's interesting. He says, like, basically, there are going to be moments that you didn't understand really what was happening on earth. That's going to make a lot more sense. It reminded me of the story of Job. I'm sure when Job... Uh, If he hasn't already gone to heaven, gets to heaven, whatever happens there where he's before God, he's going to go, oh my goodness, this is what was happening in the background, that story with Satan and all those people. I didn't. He obviously didn't know all that was happening. And there are going to be so many moments like that for each of us where we don't understand everything that's happened to us or why it happened to us, and it will make more sense in heaven. But more than just us, we will see God. We will know him clearly. We will really be able to understand Uh, the creator and maker of this world and that will be either the greatest joy and the just the most amazing moment of our lives or obviously it will be the greatest terror
1: Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Jonathan Glosson. We've had Glosson narrate on the show before. He did the David Livingston episode, which I actually love. If you haven't listened to the David Livingston one, go and check that out as well. Claussen started with Clear Channel Radio in the 90s. He's also worked in audio and marketing for 20 years. His credits include stints in EA Tiburon, Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, and a lot of freelance as voice talent for audiobooks and podcasts. Troy, yes, we got. Uh, we're starting a, a very exciting new book giveaway segment. Segment. Segment of the show. Uh, for the, I'm, I'm reaching down into our imaginary box of of books (laughs) to give away and i'm pulling out one of my favorites here this is called in their own words it's subtitled the testimonies of martin luther john calvin john knox and john bunyan which i feel like is just typecast for this show we've covered all of those people and this book (laughs) includes testimonies from all of them it's great and you know troy and i are going to custom sign the front uh panel here the front leaf what do they call that the front page front page
2: we're not we're not we're still a little new we're rookies to the game. we're gonna write a
1: custom message (laughs) on this front page and we're gonna give it away to a random listener thanks to our friends at banner of truth and we, we
2: really recommend banner of truth has a ton of amazing books if you like old stuff like this these old sermons these guys have tons of books written straight from them we've actually used their content before in our shows and they're really wonderful go and follow them on twitter go like them on facebook And that's actually how you can get involved in this giveaway. Uh, All we ask that you do is share our episode, this episode that you're listening to right now on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. And I will enter you into a giveaway. Every time I see that share happen, it goes into a list. And I can enter you into the giveaway to randomly be selected to win this book that we have. But... I want to make a recommendation. We did this back in June with Brian Wolfmuller's book and it went splendidly. The only problem is some of you guys uh, did share it, but your settings weren't public. So we could see that you had shared things and that you told others about it, but we couldn't actually put your name into the list. So I could see that 15 people have shared Mm -hmm. it, but of those 15, you know, I could only see 10 of their names or something like that. And so some of you guys didn't actually get shared. So make sure your public settings, at least on this post are public, so I can see that your name is in there. Put you in the giveaway.
1: Go ahead and tag us on that shared post, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, at Revive Thoughts. Uh, so that way it'll it'll ping in our system and we can see that.
2: All right. If you do all that, then you will be entered into the giveaway. We had a, a winner in July and they were very happy. And we hope to have some winners here in September as well. This is Troy and Joel and this is Revive Thoughts.
0: This episode is brought to you by the In Between podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith and everything in between.
1: On the In Between podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world,
0: ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse,
1: how to not hate your in-laws,
0: ways to save money for your next vacation,
1: and how to use the enneagram in your relationships.
0: Join us, Daniel
1: and Christina M,
0: as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected and joy-filled marriage and family.
1: For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.